Thanks, Yvonne. Good morning, everyone. Well, all of our lives contain some patches of light and some patches of darkness, you might say. For some of us, our families are by and large a light in our lives, maybe a spouse, maybe kids, maybe grandkids, or maybe parents or siblings or extended family that warms our lives, uh, or maybe a group of friends who are good company. Uh, these things can be little lights in our lives. Um, we spent several years, our family that is, spent several years wondering whether to get a dog. Um, a couple of years ago we got one and he's become a little light in our home, surprisingly undimmed after a couple of years. Um, to get home and be greeted by a furry, wagging little fellow who's glad to see you is a little light in the day. Um, it's nice to have little bits of light in your life. Um, on my long service leave, I renovated an upstairs veranda on our house and put a little chair up there. Uh, and it's a nice spot because it looks over the back garden and it gets warm sun on a, on a winter's morning and it uh, is in the shade and gets a cool breeze on a summer's afternoon. And I found that if you sneak up there with a cold drink and a book, uh, you can be quite hard to find. <laughs> so another of life's little lights uh, that's come into my life. Joe, don't, don't tell them. Um, your work might be a light in your life, or maybe not, um, or maybe some hobby or sport or something you're good at and love doing, maybe fishing or gardening or keeping chickens or painting oil paintings or um, reading. Uh, all of these little lights make life nicer and easier. But of course, none of these things can save us. Um, and our gospel is that God has now sent the great light into this world and it's not something that's sort of a long way away for us to look at and say gee look at that big light uh, it's supposed to come to each of us and become the great light in each of our lives as we live them the ministry of Jesus is the great light that has dawned on the world which should give be the light in each of our lives it's what he's done and it's also what he is still doing the ministry of Jesus is the light of our lives. So we need to understand the continuing ministry of Jesus so that we can appreciate it and receive it and participate in it and not walk around with our eyes closed to what he is doing around us. Um, and so here in this passage, in seeing the nature of Jesus' ministry, hopefully we will become aware of what's happening around us. Uh, Matthew 4 shows us the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the second half of this chapter. Um, you've been along for the journey, many of you. John the Baptist has had a big preparing ministry for Jesus. Uh, Jesus has then been baptised and empowered and endorsed for his ministry and then he's been tested by the devil and proved true. Uh, and in chapter 4, verse 12, uh, when John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus launches. And we're given a summary sketch of his Galilean ministry in verses 12 to 25, and various aspects of the ministry of Jesus, which is ongoing today. So you've been given an outline, and you'll see four aspects that I'm noting from this passage. The first is, it is a reaching ministry in verses 12 to 16. And this paragraph is really about the location that Jesus chooses to conduct the bulk of his earthly ministry. Uh, verse 12 says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, now, was he running away from a similar fate to John the Baptist? Um, it's more likely, I think, 
He was going, he was advancing into Galilee to begin his ministry rather than hiding from the public eye. Jesus had been active before this. Um, According to the Gospel of John, he's already made contact with some of his future disciples whom we meet today. Uh, There's already been the first miracle at the wedding at Cana. He's already cleared the temple at a Passover. He's already had a key conversation with Nicodemus and then another one with a Samaritan woman at the well. So that's in John's Gospel already. But according to Matthew, his formal ministry began after John the Baptist's arrest when he goes into Galilee again. And Matthew tells us why it's so significant that Jesus uh, conducts the bulk of his ministry in Galilee. There's the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, Isaiah chapter 9, which Matthew quotes here. Galilee was the northernmost region of Israel. In in, uh, Isaiah's day, it was known as the lands of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And they were the first uh, places to be invaded by the Assyrian Empire, which Isaiah had in view, uh, when it came down from the north. So Isaiah says they were the first to be invaded, the first into the darkness, and they will be the first to be rescued in the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. And so in Israel's history, there was something of a messy fulfillment of that when the exile ended, but a greater fulfillment to come. Because later in Isaiah 9, Isaiah says... There is a child to be born. There is a son to be given. And that too was to happen in this northern territory. So we see Jesus here um, conducting the main part of his ministry in these regions, these northern regions. Now in Jesus' time, Galilee had a really big population, uh, much bigger than Judea. Galilee was not desert. It was very fertile. There were big towns all over Galilee and major roads going to important places passing through. So lots of people in Galilee, but the population was very mixed. It was very multicultural. It wasn't as purely Jewish as Judea, which was more out of the way. And Galilean Jews were seen as somewhat compromised in their culture and their religion. They even had a different accent. Uh, And so you can imagine them being the butt of certain jokes. It's described here in Isaiah as Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, which was also true in Jesus' time. It was regarded as a spiritually dark place, or at least on the frontier of darkness. And that, of course, where there's darkness, is the place where the light is most needed. And Jesus conducts his ministry there. He didn't go to the center. He didn't go to Jerusalem to set himself up there. He went to the frontier, he went to the darkness where most of the people actually lived. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus went to be killed by the religious people, but Galilee is the place he went to reach the people who were living in darkness. So this is the nature of the ministry of Jesus. It is a reaching ministry. Here at the beginning of Matthew, Jesus goes to Galilee of the Gentiles, and you will remember that at the end of Matthew, Jesus sends his disciples to make disciples of all nations. So the ministry of Jesus aims to reach people who are living in darkness. And we need to reflect, I think, on the plight of those living in darkness, what spiritual darkness actually involves, and the other key phrase that is used to describe uh, them here in this prophecy is those living in the land of the shadow of death or literally those who are sitting in darkness, those who are stuck in darkness. It's a funny way of referring to people who are just sort of going about their business, isn't it? 
um, people who are living their lives and going to work and taking their kids to school and picking some stuff up from the shops and all the while they're doing all of that in the shadow of death, sitting there in their lives, marking time until judgment day, without hope and without God in the world. How wonderful is it for people who are living in darkness and in the shadow of death to see the light, for the light to dawn on them, no longer in death's shadow. And that's why Jesus' ministry is a reaching ministry and it's for every human being and it needs to be taken into the darkness where the people are. So what does that actually look like? What activity does that involve? The second feature of Jesus' ministry we see here is it is a proclaiming ministry in verse 17. And this is how the light actually dawns on a person. It's through a proclamation, an announcement that that person hears, an announcement of a new reality that has come to bear on the world, which affects everybody profoundly. Verse 17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is how we know that Jesus' formal ministry began at this point. He began to preach. Um, you might notice that, in fact, Jesus' message in Matthew, as it's summarised in this verse, is exactly the same as John the Baptist's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But the difference, of course, is that Jesus is the one that John was promising, uh, the one who would bring the kingdom. So Jesus is actually acting as his own herald here as he preaches this message. And so the balance between the kingdom being near and the kingdom actually being here is tipping towards the here as it moves from John to Jesus. And that means, of course, that Jesus was able to give far more detail than John was able to give. John could only say, repent, because the kingdom's coming and it's going to be huge and it'll be fiery. But Jesus was able to say, repent, because this is how the kingdom is going to work and it's now arriving. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 5, is the beginning of the Sermon of the Ma on the Mount, which is a sample of Jesus' kingdom preaching. Uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, is maybe a summary of the Sermon on the Mount. And the point is that the kingdom of heaven, that is, God's rule, is breaking into the world. God is finally stepping in to fix things for his people. And therefore, make sure that you are one of his people if God's kingdom is invading this world. And so the message has very, the announcement has very profound and personal implications. If you want to be one of God's people, you have to get on the side of righteousness. Uh, you have to repent. You have to start actually battling against the sin in your life and trying to please God rather than ignoring him. Those are the implications. And that proclamation is still at the centre of Jesus' ministry today. It is an announcement of news. The kingdom of heaven is here in this world. And now that Jesus has died and risen, it's even more here rather than just being near. And people need to be told and they need, they need to be urged to repent and enter the kingdom before the door closes on them. This is the news that has to be reported. Now, of course, uh, with all the bushfires around, uh, announcements are very crucial, aren't they? They're broadcast on the TV and the radio. This is how this one's going. That's how that one's going. Oh, there's a new one that's just flared up there, and we're all kind of wanting to hear because we live in the Blue Mountains. Uh, and the RFS has the Fires Near Me app, which it'll go ding-ding if um, there's a fire that flares up near us. Uh, and if a fire's coming, hopefully there'll be text messages that we all receive, and there might even be a door knock on your house to check that there's a fire coming near your street. 
uh, you better be ready. The announcement has to be made with that sort of news. Of course, we receive a lot of news that we don't really need to hear as well. Um, Personally, I can't stand the way that they report what's going on in reality TV shows as if it's news. You know, there's something in the newspaper on the website, shock revelation occurs in Married at First Sight, and you just think, oh. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> so some news must be reported. Some news is life and death, and that is the nature of this gospel announcement that Jesus came preaching. It's eternal life and death. So Jesus was a proclaimer. He was a preacher. He was an announcer of the kingdom of heaven. And that is the center of his ministry. Um, except now, of course, Jesus speaks through the voices of others. And so the third thing that characterizes his ministry as he launches it here is it's an, in, an involving ministry. The very start of Jesus' ministry, he calls disciples and he starts to teach them and train them. Uh, he begins here, as we read, by calling four fishermen to be his first disciples, two pairs of brothers. At least three of these four would go on to be first among the twelve, uh, Peter, James and John. And so we read that as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Obviously, they weren't priests, they weren't Levites, they weren't scribes, they weren't religious types, they were ordinary people. Uh, they were not dirt poor, they were small business owners, uh, they weren't completely uneducated, they could read and write, but they didn't have religious credentials as far as we know, and they were Galileans, which is a surprise. It's not apparently that Jesus saw potential in these men and said, yes, I need to have them as part of my band, uh, they've got potential. He simply chose them because he chose them. And when he chose them, his call came with authority. This was not a negotiation, it was a command. In those days, it was customary for a religious-minded person to be attracted to a particular rabbi amongst all the other rabbis and go up to that rabbi and say, can I please become your disciple? I'd like to follow you around and learn from you. And the rabbi would say, okay, or no thanks. Here, the disciple does not choose the rabbi. The rabbi chooses the disciples and he walks up to them while they're in the middle of something else and he says, follow me, and they do. Now, it's quite likely, as I said, that this wasn't the first time that Jesus had met these four. In John chapter 1, they had met him and wondered whether he might be the Messiah. Andrew had been a disciple of John the Baptist. But Jesus had apparently met them and then left them. And now that he comes back to Galilee, he goes to them, beginning his formal ministry, and he calls them to become his disciples. And so the authority of Jesus' call and the immediacy of their response is the feature here. They left their nets, James and John left their father, they left their old, their old lives behind, and they followed Jesus. And this, that is really right there, the process of becoming a Christian, since there is no such thing as a Christian who is not also a disciple. And maybe uh, it's the leaving bit that is the most challenging bit for most of us. Um, Obviously, you don't necessarily have to leave your job or your family in order to follow Jesus. 
But there needs to be a process that takes place inside of you if you make that decision, an internal sort of leaving that has to take place. A leaving of old patterns of thought, of perhaps greed that you used to just accept, or selfish ambition, or jealousy, or lusts that you lived with. Or maybe even a leaving of good things that you used to worship as if they were everything, like money, or holidays, or family, or popularity and reputation. There needs to be an internal leaving behind of those things and a singularity of focus and devotion required of a disciple, which can, of course, be difficult. In fact, it means leaving your whole identity behind, who you see yourself to be. I used to see myself to be that person, but now I am a Jesus person. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And part of that is a whole new purpose in life. I now also share the ministry, the mission of Christ. So the NIV says here, follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. But I think actually the traditional version is more accurate. Follow me and I will make you fishers of people. He doesn't just send us to do something. He actually turns us into something when we follow him. He redefines our place and our purpose in this world. After all, there's a big difference, isn't there, between saying, go and fix those sinks and saying, I I will make you a plumber. Um, Go and cut those people's hair versus I will make you a barber. Because one changes the the way you, who you see yourself to be. The other one, you're just doing a few things for somebody. Uh, Now, it could be that many of us find this uh, aspect of things uncomfortable because we don't find it easy to do evangelism. Uh, We know that we're not Billy Grahams. Maybe we've tried it before and we found it difficult and awkward and it didn't go well. Uh, But I want to make four quick points on this um, idea of becoming fishers of people. The first is the fact that all disciples are fishers of people doesn't mean that we all play the same part in the fishing business or that all fishing looks the same. Uh, In the first century, there are different kinds of fishing nets, for example, different methods of fishing. When Jesus came to Peter and Andrew, they were using a casting net. You know, you've probably seen it on TV or maybe you've even given it a go yourself. Uh, You spot the fish and you've got a net there and you're standing on the edge of your boat or something and you cast the net over them very expertly and it sort of spreads out and nets the fish. On the other hand, some nets might be kind of you go out there in your boat and you set up this net and then you go home and then you go back a few hours later and see what happens to have swum into your net. Uh, others perhaps let down the net beside the boat and then they draw it up again. All fishing has the same aim, but not all fishing uses the same method. And also, fishers presumably do a variety of different jobs. Some row the boat, some throw the net, some mend the nets, some make the lunch. They're all called fishers. They're all really keen to catch fish because that is what it's all about, but there are different parts in that process. God has given all of his people a part in this great enterprise of catching people for his kingdom. It may be that your part is praying for the fishing, but if that's your role, make sure you're doing it really, really well because you also are a fisher of people. That's the first thing I'd note about this, uh, this idea. Secondly, let's note the privilege that Jesus is giving his disciples here. The implication here is that fishing for people is a higher calling than fishing for fish. 
Uh, it's a massive privilege, whatever your role in this enterprise, to be God's co-worker. So as you pray, as you think about how you might get the good news to that particular person, uh, as perhaps you help arrange an event through at church or something through which people might come to hear the message, uh, as you invite your friend to come and hear, as you maybe have a go at speaking God's truth to them yourself, as you follow them up and ask them how, they went, how they're going with it, you are doing eternally significant work which is central to God's plans in this world. Remember that privilege of being God's co-worker and being involved and included in, in Jesus' ministry. Thirdly, I think it's good for us to also see the difference here between the command and the promise. The command here is to follow Jesus. The promise is that he will then make you a fisher of people. So don't tie yourselves in, yourself in knots um, about being a fisher of people because the command is for you to focus on following Jesus, being near to him, learning from him, following his example, and then he will look after, um, he will involve you in his work and look after the fishing for people. I think it's fair to say that as disciples of Jesus, we never feel closer to him than when we are doing his work alongside him. Uh, but if we just focus on the following, then he will use us in the fishing. That's the third point here. And the fourth is, we need to realise that this is important because those who are lost are really lost. They are sitting in the darkness, in the shadow of death. They may not know it, they might think their, light is, their life is full of light, but they need to see the great light. They need it to dawn on them. They need to hear the announcement. And so this is monumentally important work. Jesus' ministry is an involving ministry. His disciples are not spectators. We are apprentices. We are fishers of people. So what kind of impact does the kingdom have as it goes? Uh, this is the fourth point about Jesus' ministry from verses 23 to 25. It is a saving ministry. I don't have time to say much about verses 23 to 25 except to note that this is the first time that the word gospel, that is good news, is used in Matthew. When John the Baptist preached about the kingdom's coming, it may not have sounded like good news. You know, it was a lot of fire and brimstone from John the Baptist. But when Jesus preached it, it was gospel. And he showed that because alongside his preaching and teaching was backed up by marvellous miracles and these miracles weren't just party tricks. His first one was a party trick. That was the water to wine. That was sort of incidental. Uh, that was because his mother nagged him to do that, actually. Uh, but most of his miracles, not just party tricks, they were snapshots of salvation. Uh, one feature of this paragraph, 23 to 25, is its emphasis on the breadth of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He went everywhere. News about him spread even wider. People came from everywhere. And they came with problems of all kinds, unsolvable, desperate problems, physical problems, spiritual, mental, mechanical problems with themselves. And he healed all of them, 100% success rate in Jesus' healing ministry. One thing that maybe we don't fully grasp is the way that sickness and affliction uh, were seen to have spiritual roots in Jesus' day. People saw sickness and they thought sin. People saw misfortune and they thought sin. So Jesus' healings demonstrated an ability to restore people to God. That's what they were really illustrating. Not just healing, 
but completely saving people. That was the message and the promise behind Jesus' healings. And that is the nature of the kingdom of God. Yes, it's about righteousness, and therefore it's also about judgment, and it calls for repentance, but it's also about salvation, and it is about healing for those who come. Total blessing, which begins now and will be completed in, in the new creation. And therefore, it is good news, it is gospel that we have to proclaim. And that's our testimony as Christians as well, isn't it? Um, we've met Jesus, we have believed and we've entered the kingdom, and we have been restored to God. We have been saved. We have been healed with even greater healing to come. And maybe I think we forget that this message is good news because we don't think people will welcome it these days and we're kind of scared of all the arguments that it will, that it will bring up if we try to raise the topic. But let's remember that this is not bad news. This is good news. This is gospel. Several years ago, there was an ad on the TV uh, where the water in Tasmania just makes things better. You remember that ad? Uh, something gets thrown into the water and it comes out as a better version of itself. So a um, guy rides a bicycle into the water and he comes out on a motorbike. Uh, a couple of guys throw a canoe into the water and it turns into a speedboat. Um, guy dips his knife into the water and he pulls out a, a lightsaber from Star Wars. Um, and in the last scene of the ad, there's a guy sitting on the pier with his, with his girlfriend at, at uh, dusk, gives her a shove into the water, um, which somebody from 8 o'clock said to me is awfully sexist, and I agree. If it were me, I would have just left Joe on the pier and jumped into the water myself. Um, but the... the, the, the um, yeah, maybe a bit of a splash as well. But the catchphrase of the ad back to the point is that the water just makes things better and you see something like that happening around Jesus for real uh, not as a magical thing but by his choice every time being near Jesus just makes things better and that is the nature of the kingdom of heaven it is a kingdom of light and its message is gospel it's news worth celebrating so the ministry of Jesus which is the great light of the world is a reaching ministry it goes into the darkness it is a proclaiming ministry it announces that the kingdom of heaven has arrived it is an involving ministry in which jesus disciples have a part to play and it is a saving ministry which restores people to god body and soul this is the one great hope of the world this is the great light that has dawned and we're not just receivers we are participants we are workers in this process so let's pray that God helps us to, uh, to receive and to play our part. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that your kingdom has reached us in our darkness. And we thank you that in doing so, you have included us in the kingdom of light. It, the light has dawned upon us. We thank you also for the privilege of involving us in this work, that we don't just watch it happening, but you also train us and give us the privilege of being part of things. And we thank you, Lord, for showing us in our experience as well as in the scriptures that this is a saving work, that it uh, heals and restores. Uh, we pray for more of that in our own lives as we walk with Christ in your kingdom, and we pray for that for those around us as well. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.